This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abris. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 3, Chapter 3, Part 1 of 2. Such are those thick and gloomy shadows damp, oft seen in charnel walls and sepulchres, lingering and sitting by a new-made grave. Milton On the following day, Montoni sent a second excuse to Emily, who was surprised at the circumstance. This is very strange, said she to herself. His conscience tells him the purport of my visit, and he defers it to avoid an explanation. She now almost resolved to throw herself in his way, but terror checked the intention, and this day passed, as the preceding one, with Emily, except that a degree of awful expectation concerning the approaching night now somewhat disturbed the dreadful calmness that had pervaded her mind. Towards evening the second part of the band, which had made the first excursion among the mountains, returned to the castle, where, as they entered the courts, Emily in her remote chamber heard their loud shouts and strains of exultation, like the orgies of furies over some horrid sacrifice. She even feared they were about to commit some barbarous deed, a conjecture from which, however, Annette soon relieved her by telling that the people were only exulting over the plunder they had brought with them. This circumstance still further confirmed her in the belief that Montoni had really commenced to be a captain of banditti, and meant to retrieve his broken fortunes by the plunder of travellers. Indeed, when she considered all the circumstances of his situation, in an armed and almost inaccessible castle, retired far among the recesses of wild and solitary mountains, along whose distant skirts were scattered towns and cities, whither wealthy travellers were continually passing. This appeared to be the situation of all others most suited for the success of schemes of rapine, and she yielded to the strange thought that Montoni was become a captain of robbers. His character also, unprincipled, dauntless, cruel, and enterprising, seemed to fit him for the situation. Delighting in the tumult and in the struggles of life, he was equally a stranger to pity and to fear. His very courage was a sort of animal ferocity, not the noble impulse of a principle, such as inspirits the mind against the oppressor in the cause of the oppressed, but a constitutional hardiness of nerve that cannot feel and that, therefore, cannot fear. Emily's supposition, however natural, was in part erroneous, for she was a stranger to the state of this country and to the circumstances under which its frequent wars were partly conducted. The revenues of the many states of Italy being at that time insufficient to the support of standing armies, even during the short periods which the turbulent habits both of the governments and the people permitted to pass in peace, an order of men arose, not known in our age, and but faintly described in the history of their own. Of the soldiers, disbanded at the end of every war, 
few returned to the safe but unprofitable occupations than usual in peace sometimes they passed into other countries and mingled with armies which still kept the field sometimes they formed themselves into bands of robbers and occupied remote fortresses where their desperate character the weakness of the garments which they offended and the certainty that they could be recalled to the armies when their presence should be again wanted prevented them from being much pursued by the civil power and sometimes they attached themselves to the fortunes of a popular chief by whom they were led into the service of any state which could settle with him the price of their valour from this latter practice arose their name condottieri a term formidable all over italy for a period which concluded in the earlier part of the seventeenth century but of which it is not so easy to ascertain the commencement contests between the smaller states were then for the most part affairs of enterprise alone and the probabilities of success were estimated not from the skill but from the personal courage of the general and the soldiers the ability which was necessary to the conduct of tedious operations was little valued it was enough to know how a party might be led towards their enemies with the greatest secrecy or conducted from them in the compactest order the officer was to precipitate himself into a situation where but for his example the soldiers might not have ventured and as the opposed parties knew little of each other's strength the event of the day was frequently determined by the boldness of the first movements in such services the condottieri were eminent and in these where plunder always followed success their characters acquired a mixture of intrepidity and profligacy which awed even those whom they served when they were not thus engaged their chief had usually his own fortress in which or in its neighbourhood they enjoyed an irksome rest and though their wants were at one time partly supplied from the property of the inhabitants the lavish distribution of their plunder at others prevented them from being obnoxious and the peasants of such districts gradually shared the character of their warlike visitors the neighbouring governments sometimes professed but seldom endeavoured to suppress these military communities both because it was difficult to do so and because a disguised protection of them ensured for the service of their wars a body of men who could not otherwise be so cheaply maintained or so perfectly qualified the commanders sometimes even relied so far upon this policy of the several powers as to frequent their capitals and montoni having met them in the gaming parties of venice and padua conceived a desire to emulate their characters before his ruined fortunes tempted him to adopt their practices it was for the arrangement of his present plan of life that the midnight councils were held at his mansion in venice and at which orsino and some other members of the present community then assisted with suggestions which they had since executed with the wreck of their fortunes on the return of night emily resumed her situation at the casement there was now a moon and as it rose over the tufted woods its yellow light served to show the lonely terrace and the surrounding objects more distinctly than the twilight of the stars had done and promised emily to assist her observations should the mysterious form return 
on this subject she again wavered in conjecture and hesitated whether to speak to the figure to which a strong and almost irresistible interest urged her but terror at intervals made her reluctant to do so if this is a person who has designs upon the castle said she my curiosity may prove fatal to me yet the mysterious music and the lamentations i heard must surely have proceeded from him if so he cannot be an enemy she then thought of her unfortunate aunt and shuddering with grief and horror the suggestions of imagination seized her mind with all the force of truth and she believed that the form she had seen was supernatural she trembled breathed with difficulty an icy coldness touched her cheeks and her fears for a while overcame her judgment her resolution now forsook her and she determined if the figure should appear not to speak to it thus the time passed as she sat at her casement awed by expectation and by the gloom and stillness of midnight for she saw obscurely in the moonlight only the mountains and woods a cluster of towers that formed the west angle of the castle and the terrace below and heard no sound except now and then the lonely watchword passed by the sentinels on duty and afterwards the steps of the men who came to relieve guard and whom she knew at a distance on the rampart by their pikes that glittered in the moonbeam and then by the few short words in which they hailed their fellows of the night emily retired within her chamber while they passed the casement when she returned to it all was again quiet it was now very late she was wearied with watching and began to doubt the reality of what she had seen on the preceding night but she still lingered at the window for her mind was too perturbed to admit of sleep the moon shone with a clear lustre that afforded her a complete view of the terrace but she saw only a solitary sentinel pacing at one end of it and at length tired with expectation she withdrew to seek rest such however was the impression left on her mind by the music and the complaining she had formerly heard as well as by the figure which she fancied she had seen that she determined to repeat the watch on the following night montoni on the next day took no notice of emily's appointed visit but she more anxious than before to see him sent annette to inquire at what hour he would admit her he mentioned eleven o'clock and emily was punctual to the moment at which she called up all her fortitude to support the shock of his presence and the dreadful recollection it enforced he was with several of his officers in the sadar room on observing whom she passed and her agitation increased while he continued to converse with them apparently not observing her till some of his officers turning round saw emily and uttered an exclamation she was hastily retiring when montoni's voice arrested her and in a faltering accent she said i would speak with you signor montoni if you are at leisure these are my friends he replied whatever you would say they may hear emily without replying turned from the rude gaze of the chevaliers and montoni then followed her to the hall whence he led her to a small room of which he shut the door with violence as she looked on his dark countenance she again thought she saw the murderer of her aunt and her mind was so convulsed with horror 
that she had not power to recall thought enough to explain the purport of her visit, and to trust herself with the mention of Madame Montoni was more than she dared. Montoni at length impatiently inquired what she had to say. "'I have no time for trifling,' he added. "'My moments are important.' Emily then told him that she wished to return to France, and came to beg that he would permit her to do so. But when he looked surprised, and inquired for the motive of the request, she hesitated, became paler than before, trembled, and had nearly sunk at his feet. He observed her emotion, with apparent indifference, and interrupted the silence by telling her he must be gone. Emily, however, recalled her spirits sufficiently to enable her to repeat her request, and when Montoni absolutely refused it, her slumbering mind was roused. "'I can no longer remain here with propriety, sir,' said she, "'and I may be allowed to ask by what right you retain me.' "'It is my will that you remain here,' said Montoni, laying his hand on the door to go. "'Let that suffice you.' Emily, considering that she had no appeal from this will, forbore to dispute his right, and made a feeble effort to persuade him to be just. "'While my aunt lived, sir,' said she, in a tremulous voice, "'my residence here was not improper, but now that she is no more, I may surely be permitted to depart. My stay cannot benefit you, sir, and will only distress me.' "'Who told you that Madame Montoni was dead?' said Montoni, with an inquisitive eye. Emily hesitated, for nobody had told her so, and she did not dare to avow that having seen that spectacle in the portal chamber which had compelled her to the belief. "'Who told you so?' he repeated, more sternly. "'Alas, I know it too well,' replied Emily. "'Spare me on this terrible subject.' She sat down on a bench to support herself. "'If you wish to see her,' said Montoni, "'you may. She lies in the east turret.' He now left the room, without awaiting her reply, and returned to the cedar chamber, where such of the chevaliers as had not before seen Emily began to rally him on the discovery they had made. But Montoni did not appear disposed to bear this mirth, and they changed the subject. Having talked with the subtle Orsino, on the plan of an excursion which he mediated for a future day, his friend advised that they should lie in wait for the enemy, which, whereas he impetuously opposed, reproached Orsino with want of spirit, and swore that, if Montoni would let him lead on fifty men, he would conquer all that should oppose him. Orsino smiled contemptuously. Montoni smiled too, but he also listened. Whereas he then proceeded with vehement declamation and assertion till he was stopped by an argument of Orsino, which he knew not how to answer better than by invective. His fierce spirit detested the cunning caution of Orsino, whom he constantly opposed, and whose inveterate though silent hatred he had long ago incurred. And Montoni was a calm observer of both whose different qualifications he knew, and how to bend their opposite character to the perfection of his own designs. But Verezzi, in the heart of opposition, now did not scruple to accuse Orsino of cowardice, 
at which the countenance of the latter, while he made no reply, was overspread with a livid paleness, and Montoni, who watched his lurking eye, saw him put his hand hastily into his bosom. But Verezzi, whose face, glowing with crimson, formed a striking contrast to the complexion of Orsino, remarked not the action, and continued boldly declaiming against cowards to Cavigni, who was slyly laughing at his vehemence, and at the silent mortification of Orsino, when the latter, retiring a few steps behind, drew forth a stiletto to stab his adversary in the back. Montoni arrested his half-extended arm, and with a significant look made him return the poignard into his bosom. Unseen by all except himself, for most of the party were disputing at a distant window, on the situation of a dell where they meant to form an ambuscade. When Verezzi had turned round, the deadly hatred expressed on the features of his opponent, raising for the first time a suspicion of his intention, he laid his hand on his sword, and then, seeming to recollect himself, strode up to Montoni. Signor, said he, with a significant look at Orsino, we are not a band of assassins. If you have business for brave men, employ me on this expedition. You shall have the last drop of my blood. If you have only work for cowards, keep him, pointing to Orsino, and let me quit Udolfo. Orsino, still more incensed, again drew forth his stiletto, and rushed towards Verezzi, who, at the same instant, advanced with his sword, when Montoni and the rest of the party interfered and separated them. "'This is the conduct of a boy,' said Montoni to Verezzi, "'not of a man. Be more moderate in your speech.' "'Moderation is the virtue of cowards,' retorted Verezzi. They are moderate in everything, but in fear. I accept your words, said Montoni, turning upon him with a fierce and haughty look, and drawing his sword out of the scabbard. With all my heart, cried Verezzi, though I did not mean them for you. He directed a pass at Montoni, and while they fought, the villain Orsino made another attempt to stab Verezzi, and was again prevented. The combatants were at length separated, and after a very long and violent dispute reconciled. Montoni then left the room with Orsino, whom he detained in private consultation for a considerable time. End of Volume 3, Chapter 3, Part 1 of 2 Recording by Red Abrus June 2008